This is Lesson Jack on Writing, Uncensored, Episode 6, How to Create True Emotion. Feelings Nothing more than feeling Trying to forget my Um, just like a couple of questions first. Sure. Feelings of love in uh, my, my story, I don't know if you remember, like I felt like when Corky gets his diploma and then he rushes back to his seat, I felt like there's something, that there was like an opportunity there that I'm, I was like missing. And you told me you were going to do something and you didn't do it. Well, I didn't figure out what, I, I just knew that I didn't, I didn't know what. You were going to have him fall twice? Well, he falls on stage and then he gets his diploma. Yeah. And then he rushes back to his seat. But that rushing back to the seat it just felt like it it's it's too mu- it's too little. Well, that's it'd be a good place to do that thing I suggested to have a guy sit in and say they're talking about when he went to bed. No. No, I got a different one. Okay. So when he's rushing down the aisle somebody sticks out a foot and trips him. <laughs> so he goes like that, and everybody goes, oh, like the whole auditorium. Yeah. Like they thought the show was over, uh-huh. and he's off the stage, but then everybody falls and flat on his face again. Yeah. Anyway, that's an idea. That's cool. Is it too, it's not too much. No. You you kept saying hammer, and, ha- and I'm like, yeah. I've thrown so much more now, like even like Kevin in the lobby actually gets in his face and pushes him. Cool. Instead of him like backing off. Cool. Okay. So okay, that was just a question. Yeah. No, you. Uh. Oh, this came to me, for like kind of near the end, when he like defends Q-Ball, where Q-Ball is getting pummeled, like his face is. He's getting so pummeled, his face is bloody. By who? By like the people in the pipeline. Really? Yeah, he does something that's... Is that already in there? Is that no, 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 no. This is the last thing. Oh, oh, okay. The last thing that happens where... Yeah. Where Corky loses, wins because he... Takes up for him. And ...discovers that he can... Yeah. He, he sees his bloody face and he's yeah. like, he steps in. And he defends the guy that's been picking on him sure. the whole time and yeah. and abusing him the whole yep. time. And he steps in and he stops it. Yeah. And everybody hates him for it and he loses all he can't stay there anymore. That's kinda like what he loses. Is he loses all these new friends except for like the ones that are like appreciate that he did a good thing. Okay. Like he runs into Gale later and he describes what happened or somehow maybe he's just... Well, if that's going to be the last scene, that's got to be the last scene. Well, it's not... What do you mean? If you're talking about the ending. Well, the ending of him... Him... Defend... Losing all of his friends is part of that ending. So that's the last thing in the outline. Is then that's got to be the last scene. Oh, okay. The end, yeah. The last scene is when all this shit comes together that he's gone through, and it all 
and he realizes the truth about himself, and that's when he goes and saves the guy. Right. But uh, it can't be he thinks about it or anything. It has to be. A, we haven't even got to that yet. That's the Janet Burroway thing. There has to be a physical action. It can't be him talking to a pre, you know, none of that kind of shit. Can't right, be no, it's that's thinking the, or dialogue or none of that. Right, no, I'm just imagining this this thing yeah. suddenly happens out of nowhere. Yeah. And his, like, instinctual reaction, because he's really a good kid, yeah. is to jump in and save Cuball's life. But it's got to be something he couldn't have done at the beginning. Oh, no, not at all. Okay, good. Yeah, you're, you're on the right track. So is it okay that I'm thinking about that ending now? Yeah, that's fine. And I have the ending already? It's fine. No, that's absolutely fine. You'll probably end up changing at least some of it, but right. that's no, that's fine. Because the other thing is when I was thinking about the scene, it actually, I got emotional about it. Cool, cool. So I think that's really powerful. Yes, it is. Right. Way to go, Cricket. Because, or because now I have the inciting incident, which yeah. is emotional for me. Yeah. And there's other things that are emotional. And this final scene is really emotional. Did you... Because I, I go back and look at other people's comments on each other. Mm -hmm. And Mary made some comments about your dialogue, too. It's... This it, week? I didn't, yeah. I didn't read it or, um, from this week yet. Okay, she only had one comment, but... Huh. It was about your dialogue. And the dialogue, I didn't even go into it as much as I should have. Uh -huh. Because it's a little wooden. He's using perfect language. He doesn't, no contractions. Oh. People do not talk like that. Okay. Even Tarver professors don't talk like that. His internal language or his spoken language? Either one. Oh, okay. you got to use lots of contractions and shit. and Fragments, sentence fragments and all that bullshit. But it's okay. That's That's just busy work. You right. clean all that up as you go. It's funny because that's my strength is dialogue. Yeah. But it's too perfect. It's too on the nose. Okay. Okay? Just Whatever. just be aware of it. Yeah, well, I'll, yeah, I'll work on that. Oh, and, you know, as I thought of this ending, um, I realized it's um, very similar to this thing in a book that I read a long time ago that stuck with me, mm. Lord of the Flies. Oh, Lord of the Flies. When S Simon... Gets up with a cock shell. Simon is like the guy who's always fainting and yeah. having visions. He goes off by himself and he sees the pig on the stick and he like has this crazy vision. And I vaguely remember, yeah. Meanwhile, like the other, like the group that's like out of control is like... Oh, uh, a fighter pilot lands on on the top of the hill, on the top of the mountain, mm -hmm. and is he's he's dead. He's like a It's just a body with a parachute. Oh, okay. And I think one of the group, like the twin, one of the younger kids, discover it, but they don't see what it is. They oh. just see this big orange thing, and they think it's a monster. It's a parachute. Yeah. It's just a parachute. So they go down and say, "There's a monster," and they're, and they're kind of. And they go crazy this one night where Ralph, you know, Jack is like the the lead, the bad guy leader, yeah. and they're like dancing around the fire and they're singing "Kill the monster, kill the monster." Oh, okay, I remember that. Right. Meanwhile, Simon has gone up to the mount top, mountain top. So much like oh, connections to the, the broad strokes of the story, but he goes up to the mountain top. That's symbolic. Yeah. 
And he's Simon, the guy who has the visions, and with the courage, because he has the visions, he sees things. And he discovers it's just like a freaking fighter pilot. Yeah. So he's like he's like running back down through the jungle. And by the time he gets down to the edge of the jungle, to where they're all like dancing around the bonfire, and Jack and Ralph, who were like having like a fight over the, the leadership. Yeah. They're all like whipped up in this frenzy about the monster and kill sure. the monster, and somebody screams out, "The monster!" Oh, it was it was him. Running and it's at Simon him. coming at running for at them from the bushes in the dark. So they and they him. they pounce on him and kill him. Cool, right? Cool. Before he can like reveal the truth. Hey, did you ever read uh, uh, Tim Dorsey's or uh, is it Tim Dorsey? Uh, it's about the the nun. It's about cargo cults. Do you know what cargo cults were? No. In World War Two, there was all these isolated islands in the Pacific. Oh. Had never seen a white person or anything, and the U.S. would send these bombers and they'd build bases there. Right. But they brought all kinds of, and they thought they were gods. Uh-huh. These these shows say that's what they think a lot of these drawings are. They find caveman drawings and shit uh-huh. they're like cargo clothes because they they have nothing to refer to it right where, you know a spaceship lands or a plane lands right. and so they build things to it because they're cargo clothes island of the sequin love none if you haven't read that book you should that's the second funniest book i've ever read in my island life island of the sequin love none S- the island of the sequin love none yep it's uh love none love none n-u-n it's so freaking funny. Uh-huh. And it's, uh, what's his name, from Akron, who lives in California. He used to live in Hawaii. I'm always getting him mixed up with Tim Dorsey. But it's not Tim Dorsey. It's, uh, God, he's my, one of my favorite writers. I'm I, so bad on names anymore. Hey, you've got to read that book. Okay. That's, they, what he does, it starts out, this guy's a pilot, but he, he he's a, he's a, player he likes the ladies uh-huh. so he's in this airport i think it's seattle and it's like two in the morning there's nobody in there except him this this gal at the bar and him and he goes over romance well he's got his own plane they don't say it but they got sued by uh, mary Kay. he's got a pink plane a corporate plane uh-huh. he takes her up in it for the mile high club uh-huh. and it's a pink plane and Mary Kay sued him, even though they never said Mary Kay. She sued him and won. Uh-huh. It was just good publicity. Uh-huh. But anyway, he's nailing her in her, the mile high shit uh-huh. and hits something, and the plane goes down. He wrecks the plane and everything. He, he They live, but uh, that's how it starts. And anyway, he gets a uh, nobody will hire him now. He's lost his license and everything. So this guy is smuggling body parts, like kidneys and shit like that, uh-huh. in the South Seas, is set up in an island. And the natives think he's a god because that that the white people have ever seen it from the cargo cults, from the cargo planes in World War Two. Oh, okay. Okay, so it's just funnier shit. Right. But uh, <laughs> you got to read it. God, you got to get it now. I, I mean now. Funny Lord Jim. Yeah, it's it's the second. David Sedaris's book Barrel Fever is the funniest book. This is right behind it. <laughs> So what's the what's the theme of today? Feelings? Well, it's it's uh it's it's what people do 
beginning writers, beginning poets, what they do is they, they write about the emotion, but not the act that created the emotion. And it's, they all do it. Everybody does it. Okay. Okay? So that's basically it. It's just so common. It's just extremely common with new writers. Okay. They, they, they instinctively know they've got to get emotion in there. So what they do, they always write about some experience. They had girls always had this guy that dumped them or whatever. You know, their lost love or whatever. Right. But they never write about the act or the relationship. They write about the act. They tell their emotions, right. how they feel now. Right. And it sucks. It's no good. Right. You can't do that. You've got to write the scene. Right. Whether it's poetry, fiction, or whatever. Right. And that's such a common mistake. I've n I don't think I've ever had a writer, a new writer, that didn't start out that way. Never. It's so common. And high schools encourage it because they don't know any fucking thing. I'm sorry, but they just don't. Huh. It's like, we'll get to it a little bit later, this teacher, it's her uh, master's advisor. It's funny because I don't, I, you know, the, like the first thing, one of the first things I wrote in, actually the, the first thing I wrote where this teacher, Lynn Lappin, he was an English teacher in my high school, uh -huh. there's a lot to him, but he... It was, I think it was from him. He was like the first one that said you're a really good writer. Uh-huh. And it was based on this little essay, maybe a couple of pages long. Sure. And it was just about how when I went from ninth grade at another high school, and mm -hmm. I was like a new kid, at, even though it was my local high school. Yeah. And early in the year, the principal had like the new kids, like to the district, there's only like five of us sitting in the cafeteria mm -hmm. and he was like talking about whatever welcome to the school and this is what your essay how it started out and everything the, so this is what the essay is about it's about so then like the people i ended up hanging out with through that school year hated school and then i learned dark secrets about the principal where he was having an affair with one of the teachers, <laughs> right? So my, when I met him one-on-one, yeah. -on -one, or practically one-on-one, -on -one, yeah. he was like a really nice guy, right? Like, shouldn't he be? And he was the principal. Nice guys have affairs. Right, but you <laughs> but you have this, as a kid, yeah. like 14, 15 this years old. Right, it's vision. like, oh, he's the principal, wow, you know, and he's really nice, and he did yeah. this thing, and and then I was like, oh That's my God. That's kind of a nice thing he did, though. Yeah, and but then like through the year, I discovered this other side to him. Yeah, like he's married and he's screwing around, or whatever. Good for him. Go out and play, George. <laughs> so the essay was about my changing perspective on the principle, right? Yeah. It wasn't about my feelings about Did the principle. Did you start out with him liking the principle? And then little by little, or whatever, he discovers this. Well, it was about the perspective change. It wasn't. It wasn't about my feelings changing. Right. It was about the perspective change, which actually the substitute teacher that Mr. Lappin had, like, he had to get uh, dialysis all the time. Mrs. Smith, who is this real, who I knew actually because she was a substitute in my elementary school too. Uh -huh. but she. She graded it like a low grade, like a 
your C, essay? Yeah, my essay, like a C or D. Yeah. And he got it, and he regraded it like A minus. That's the guys you kill for. That's the guy you. Oh, want he to be was in, great. You want to be in the trenches? You brought up C. B. Sandy. His his film Trees Lounge is dedicated to Mr. Lappin. What, what movie? Trees Lounge. Trees Lounge. Yeah, it was a movie that Steve made, like, right after he became Steve, Steve Buscemi. Oh, okay. Is he played kind of a good guy in this? Rather yeah, than his he, normal role as a bad guy? Yeah, he's hanging around. Yeah, I saw it. It's he's a dark working, little movie. He's working in an ice cream truck. Yeah, I did see it. it that's movie. all about, that's Valley Stream. Okay. That's what, Trees Lounge is a real bar in Valley Street. Oh, I do remember it now, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's one of my favorite movies. It's all about Valley. It's a little movie, but it's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. The I, best drunk fight I've ever seen. Yeah. Where they're just like, <laughs> do you remember that? Yeah. I it's talked all to, coming back. I talked to Mark Boone about that. Wow. You know, Mark Boone Jr. from, he's like buddies with him in the movie. Wow. He's like his drinking buddy. The seems. Yeah. And Mark Boone is in Sons of Anarchy. He's in a ton of different movies. He's a big kind of star. So, that's a biker movie? Biker show. Sons of Anarchy. That sucked. Whatever. That's, it, all they were was Hollywood producers' kids. Jeez, there was not a realistic so biker Mark in Boone, entire thing. Mark Boone, I was talking to about that drunk scene. Because I was like, yeah, I, you know, he, I'm from Valley Stream. Yeah. And he, you know, we talked about Steve Buscemi and... And he, Mark Boone, was the guy. I don't know if you remember the story where I, I was about to leave for Hollywood, and I went to this event where there were like bands and an art scene on the East River, yeah. and and I'm standing there, my friends watching these two guys doing mime between the bands, right? Okay. And they, it was like just like a a park bench, and they did it was good, whatever yeah. it was. Somebody tapped me on the shoulder, and it was Chris Buscemi. It's like, his hey, brother? Jackie, from high school, his brother. So you went to school with his brothers? Yeah. Wow, he's from New York, huh? Yeah, he went to Valley Stream Central. I love to see me. Yeah, so his brother taps me on the shoulder, and he's like, yeah, that's my brother. And at the time, wow. he wasn't well known, right? Sure, that would be a long time ago. And I told Chris, I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I told him, yeah, I'm, about, I'm going to L.A., I'm going to be a filmmaker, right? Wow. And he's like... Well, maybe you can help my, help my brother. He's an actor. He's he's on the stage. He's an actor. It's wow. like, what's his name? And it was Steve Buscemi. You should have played that for all his work. And I, he wasn't anybody at I know, that point. But you should have known I, that. And I, and I was like, that's like kind of a joke. Yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm just like going out to try to make it. Yeah. And I wrote down his name and his number, and I never called him. But then, oh, but the other guy on the stage was Mark Boone. He's big name. He's the guy that is in Sons of Anarchy. He was in Memento. I was watching Memento last night. I know I've seen that. I can't He's remember. in, like, Con Air. You know I who? used to be a Nicolas Cage huge fan. He's in Nicolas Cage. He's raising Arizona. Funny, funny, Con funny Air, Nicolas Cage. Con Air. Okay, he's didn't one buy of the, it. Did not Steve buy Uscemi's it. in that, too. Yeah, I know. I did not buy that movie. And Mark Boone's it's in like it. like Snakes on a Plane. Mark Boone's in, uh, like, uh, a million things. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. So, so you two guys, you should, did should have capitalized on it and didn't. What do you mean capitalized on it? Taking advantage of your. Well, you hung out with Clint Eastwood. You didn't capitalize. I didn't like hang out with him. I got introduced to him, sat down, listened to him and Kevin talk. You didn't capitalize on it. No, I didn't. I didn't capitalize on a lot of shit. 
I didn't capitalize on an afternoon spent with Steve McQueen. I'm not a, you're not, it's like, I'm not a salesman. I am, but I don't like imposing myself on people. I just don't. And that's not what the situation is. I mean, I've capital, I've driven like agents and I've driven like uh-huh. stars and, and sure. we've talked about writing and I've given them my writing and then it didn't go anywhere. Tons of times. It's just the way it is. I know. It's like rejection slips. Yeah. Okay, I bet you got a collection of them. Oh, I went through 84 in my first book. And that's when you sent an entire manuscript in with return postage. (sighs) And we couldn't afford to eat. And it was like 30 bucks to send and receive a manuscript. Wow. And I was 84th took it. And I was in... The one, and I went alphabetically through the Writer's Digest Guide, uh-huh. and I was on University of North De- North Texas. Uh-huh. I was in the U's. I only had I was going to go to a hundred, and I was going to quit. Uh-huh. And it was all a big accident. She even took it, even looked at it, and then took it. Anyway, I won't get into that. Okay. Okay, you ready to roll? Yeah. Okay. Um, a few years ago, I served for three years as a writer in residence at the University of Toledo. And I've kept in contact with many of my former students. And one of my favorite of those students, and I have had a series of communications recently that may be of interest, and our discussions may also help inform other writers who may be having similar problems. I won't name her except to call her Kay. Kay was an absolute delight in my classes. A highly intelligent, dynamic student. She graduated and is currently teaching in an inner city middle school in Ohio. She and I hope that I'll be able to appear before classes next semester, probably via Skype. Anyway, recently she decided she wanted to try her hand at poetry. I'd seen her fiction. It was extremely good. She asked me if I'd read a couple of her poems and see what I thought, and if I thought they were publishable, if maybe I could recommend somebody to send them to. I told her I had a friend that edited a wonderful literary magazine, and if I felt they were good, I'd, I'd be happy to recommend them to her. To him and her to him. So she sent me the, these two poems. Here's what she said, and, and here are her poems. And you, hey Les. Hey Les, thank you so much for taking the time to look over my poetry. Even if you find that your friend wouldn't like it, it'd be nice to have some feedback from you. I'm always looking to get better. I have to admit, I have no idea what a publisher is looking for. I chose two poems to attach because I couldn't choose which one to include. I have an emotional connection to both of them because they're both poems I wrote after experiencing a miscarriage. I didn't know if it was too personal of a subject to pass along, but sometimes emotional subjects evoke the most feeling and someone might be able to relate. If they suck, that's totally fine. Please be brutally honest. If nothing else, it was a good release for me in dealing with the tough situation. The first poem, I think, is the better one, but it also lacks structure. I struggle with rhythm sometimes. Thank you so much again, Les. You've been so helpful, and it's been great to reconnect. P.S. Did I mention I'm pregnant? Laugh out loud. I've yet to write a happy poem about it, but it'll come. And if you could read the two poems. Okay, here's the poem. A Moment of Recognition. A moment of recognition as you slowly stroll by, a cursory glance over your shoulder, do my eyes defy. Inquiry lies upon your brow, a slight resemblance amongst the mass, a hesitant acceptance, 
Yes, it's you, alas. Intimate strangers never having met, familiar obscurity finally reunited. No more questioning, wondering, longing, anticipation, and joy ignited. You've made it home, ever so slowly gaining comfort, confidence, acceptance, but you've been waiting. Idly watching, scrutinizing the crowd until God grant me access, desperate to utter the words, it's you, the words, it's you, alas. Finally, the time has come for our worlds to intervene, intertwine, a sigh of relief, utter satisfaction, now you're finally mine. The torturous weight, the brokenness of my soul, it's finally making sense, I've been molded for this, a chance to become whole. Eternity with you, not just a reverie. I will know every inch of you, every expression, every feeling. My biggest wish has finally come true. You stare quizzically from afar. Love, joy, apprehension, shall you approach me? Your feet make the decision, no longer a mirage, a shadow in the distance. You speak the words aloud, it's you, alas. It is then that I know I've made it home, you with your mother and us with our maker. That's the first poem. If you could do the second poem then. It's a little shorter, I think. Consuming Sadness. Sadness knocks at the graves... Gates. No. Sorry. Sadness knocks at the gates of the heart, first begging for entry, then demanding access. Its persistence is admirable, yet irritating. It slyly slithers in, seeping into... That's alliteration, by the way. It slyly slithers in, seeping into the depths of the soul. Every crevice is filled with its thick black presence, leaving no spot left unscathed. All of the joy and happiness are strangled to their death. No struggle is needed. The victor is clear. The indomitable competitor, competitor has won again. Occasionally, the soul puts up a fight, all the glory of sadness, a tease, a mockery. It's amused by the spectacle. It's all to no avail. There was never any hope. I am its puppet, designed to do its bidding, just a prisoner succumbing succumbing to the torture. Where is the intervening force, light amongst the darkness, or is the suffering mind alone to endure? Sadness is all-consuming. Its presence is everlasting. It stays until I've withered away. No more resistance. Eternal submission. Okay, after reading those, this is what I told her. Hi, Kay. I looked at your poems and a couple of things that I think will make it difficult for them to get published, alas. First, I'm not aware of anyone publishing poetry that rhymes anymore, as in the first one, other than maybe Hallmark cards or in some internet journals that publish anything but not in legitimate and serious literary journals dedicated to quality. That's just kind of been over for many years, at least with serious poets. The chief reason being that when a poet has to come up with a word that rhymes, she sacrifices accuracy for the sake of the rhyme. The heart of all good writing, poetry or fiction, is truth, and if a rhyme is more important than the exact perfect word, you're at a remove from the truth. Makes sense? Um, The second thing is far more important. You said they're both about a miscarriage, but I couldn't tell that from either poem. It could have been about anything sad. This is really crucial. This is what we usually encounter from beginning poets and writers. It's why we can constantly preach, show, don't tell. 
what you're doing is writing about your emotion when as the reader we haven't been privy to what created that emotion and therefore makes it telling us instead of showing us and telling never impacts a person emotionally only by living through the event with the character as it unfolds will the reader ever be impacted emotionally in effect such poems are saying to the reader trust me I've had a terrible experience which I'm not going to share with you and I'm going to tell you how bad it made me feel. That's that's why I'm so, I'm so insistent on the inciting it to always be a scene. Right. We have to live through that with the character for it to make any kind of an impact. Right. We can't go back later and say, oh, I feel bad because this happened. Right. You're telling there's no impact at all. So, and that's just the big common mistake that beginning writers make. Um, it doesn't work. Alas, will never work. You're mostly describing an emotion you felt, but you're leaving out the most important part, showing us the event that led to the emotion. That's totally absent, and it's the most important part. Here's what would work. If you wrote a poem about how you and your partner had wanted desperately to have a child, and then, miraculously, you were pregnant. If you told us something about the anxious moments before you got pregnant, and then took us along as the pregnancy progressed, how you bought a bassinet, baby clothes, painted a bedroom for the baby, tried to decide if you wanted to know the sex or not, considered names, in short, all the things couples do when they're pregnant. And then, if you showed the actual miscarriage as it happened, how it came suddenly, how it happened, what went on in the home, in the hospital, how your partner reacted, how you reacted, the physical trauma you went through, in short, if you let us see the event as it transpired, then, and only then, we'd feel the emotion you wanted to communicate with the poem. You wouldn't even need to, to say how sad or desolate you felt. We know just from li living through the event with you. Makes sense, doesn't it? Right. Okay. And that's what good poetry and good or good writing is. It's showing the event as it happens. If you give us the event, the reader will experience the emotion. This is so common with beginning poets. I remember teaching in high school and the usual subject subject appear in the student's work, usually some theme on a boyfriend rejecting the writer or the like. Not putting that down at all, it's very real to the person it happens to and is legitimate, but the mistake the writer makes is writing about how she feels and that's simply telling. It doesn't impact the reader in the least. Oh, in a class where people know the person and may even know the circumstances, there may be at least some vocal display of commiseration, but we write poetry and fiction for strangers, not those in our inner circle. At least that's who we, we write for if we'd send it out to be published. And strangers don't know if the writer don't strangers don't know the writer nor the circumstances nor the event, save for what they read on the page. And to read mostly an account of how the person feels won't elicit emotion. Never except in a very general and vague way, such as when we hear of a bad traffic accident. We all say, oh my gosh, that's terrible. And then we switch the subject to the sale down at the mall, but we really don't feel much except in a surface societal way. We certainly don't feel what the reader intended we feel. That's why at a funeral service, when a preacher gets up to laud a person he or she didn't know, most of the time he'd offer up well-worn platitudes and generalized sympathetic terms and eyes glaze over. But when the guy's best friend gets up and talks about all the camping trips they made together and how the deceased kept burning the coffee every morning just like he did at home, 
Then people nod and shake their head in agreement and feel something. Don't be the preacher using sermon at number 93 for the occasion, muttering worn-out platitudes couched in so-called poetic language. That doesn't work for funeral service and it doesn't work for poetry. It's so important to know this when writing. It's what we mean when we say show, don't tell. Anything important in a poem or a story has to be written as a scene, never by telling the reader about the, after the fact how we feel. Look at the little, uh, look at the little play Shakespeare wrote titled Romeo and Juliet. If he'd simply given us the couple's feelings without allowing us to live through the event of their deaths and all the circumstances and actions leading up to it and afterward, it would never have been performed on the stage and certainly wouldn't have lived on as long as it has a new canon. We feel the emotion only because we were witness to the event. Even as great a writer as the bard was, if he'd only given us soliloquies expressing the grief, it would have suffered the same fate as any poet's work that only contains the feelings after the fact, which would have been only available in his room. Hope this makes sense. You have a gift with language, and if you grasp this, your poetry will soar. I'll bet good money that when I was laying out the actions in the miscarriage above, you felt emotion and perhaps even intense emotion. If so, that's because you would have been reliving the events that they happened to you. That's what you need to do in your poems. Deliver the event, not the emotion you felt after the event. That's not for you to furnish. The reader will furnish that if you but provide the account of the event and provide a dramatic account, not a melodramatic rendering. That simply means lowering the volume. Let the event itself dictate the emotion elicited. What's more powerful? The woman whose child has just been run over by a bus, who runs out, prostrates herself over the child's dead body, raises her face to the heavens while shrieking and tearing out her hair by the handful, cursing against an unfeeling God, and even, parentheses, this is a particular yuck for me, in parent, showing a single tear coursing down her cheek or simply having a woman's, or another ver the better version, simply having the woman slumped to the curb and affecting the thousand-yard stare of the gazelle mother who's just witnessed the lion take down her fawn. One is melodramatic, loud and brassy and full of cliches, while the other is a truly profound reaction to a tragedy. Opt for drama, not melodrama. If told honestly and truly, the event itself will furnish all you need for the reader's emotion. Finally, you sent these poems because you had an, quote, emotional connection, unquote, to them, and that, quote, I didn't know if it was too personal of a subject to pass along, but sometimes emotional subjects make the most feeling, evoke the most feeling, and, and someone might be able to relate, quote, well, okay, that's just what, that's just about the only reason to write a poem. That's what poetry is. It's expressing to the world what happened and how it affected the writer emotionally. This isn't entirely true. There are perfectly frivolous that poems, poems decided to provide a political or social statement. In short, a poem can be about virtually anything that interests or impacts a writer in any way. But what all good poetry has in common is that it's not a recitation of the writer's feelings couched in some elevated melodramatic poetical language. It's about the thing that created those emotions. Trust the reader's intelligence that he or she will get the same emotion you did after experiencing the same thing you did. You don't need to tell us you're sad 
or that you laughed out loud or that you felt pissed off will get the same feeling you did if you write the events that led you to that state. Hope that helps. Blue skies and less. And? Okay. Kay replied, Hi, Liz. Wow, thank, wow, thank you so much for de such detailed comments. They definitely help a lot. The first poem is about a woman, me, meeting my child in heaven for the first time. Since I've never seen him, her, I don't know for whom I'm looking. I see the child and finally realize that there's a family resemblance there and it must be my child. I then go through the emotions of waiting for this day to come and how it might feel for the child too, to embrace someone and dive right into a relationship that is unfamiliar. I thought the ending probably gave clarity to the storyline by saying you with your mother and us with our maker, God. I guess you're right though, maybe the ambiguity isn't a good thing and I should make it more clear earlier. I guess I thought it added suspense. I also appreciate the comment about r the rhyme scheme. That sucks because I originally didn't have it rhyming, but I changed it so that it would. I'll change it back. I see how people feel comf confined by rhyming and they don't effectively get their message across because they're so worried about finding a word to rhyme. I like your suggestion about the content of the second one. It does leave the reader in the dark about the situation that caused the sadness. I wrote that one for my students to study personification and other literary elements. So that one was vague on purpose because I didn't necessarily want to share something so personal with them. I see how it doesn't really work. Again, thank you so much for helping me. It's hard to know how to get better when I don't know what publishers to look for. What publishers look for. Okay. I replied, Hi Kay, I'm glad you took my comments in the spirit intended with professionalism. You haven't changed a bit since our days in the classroom, which is why you were one of the best students. One thing you said, quote, I, don't, I didn't necessarily want to share something so personal with them, unquote. I want to comment on any writing poetry or fiction that isn't intensely personal, to be honest, isn't not worth sharing in my opinion. And it's not poetry, even with kids, maybe especially with kids. If we don't expect them to expose them to things that are intensely personal, what kinds of models are we providing? In my mind, pretty much meaningless things. If we leave out passion, what is really left? And not telling passion, but showing where it comes from and how it was created. There are two things that make any writing work. Make it clear and make it interesting. That's what Hemingway said, actually. When you say you wrote it for your students to study personification and other literary elements, alas, it doesn't do either. Personification is when it's, what's the word? Oh yeah, personal. And if it's not interesting, and laundry lists of emotional terms is, isn't remotely interesting, then there are no literary elements. Literary elements are techniques used to communicate emotion. They're not something in and of themselves. They only exist to inform communication. If you're not communication, then they're not literary elements. What happens in many classrooms is that when kids write anything at all, as teachers we're overjoyed, even if it isn't very good. It's so difficult to get kids to write or read at all that any effort is welcomed joyously. So we end up accepting less than what they're capable of. We also end up not showing them what poetry is really about. We end up assuming they can't understand or appreciate good writing, that they have to 
take some kind of first steps or something. Ease into good writing gradually. That's such a major piece of BS, but many buy into that mindset, unfortunately. The truth is, the only thing kids do appreciate and understand is good writing. We do them a disservice by thinking they're not ready for quality writing. We end up dumbing down things for them. On a subconscious level, people, including kids, always resent that. The vast majority of people are pretty smart, no matter what the age. They know when they're being talked down to, or taught up down to, or taught down to. When they write a poem that's only about the emotion and don't give the reason for that emotion, they may, may bask in the praise on the surface, but kids know what's phony and what's not. Most of them have a perfectly good and reliable BS detector in their backpacks and know when they're being shucked, even when the shuck consists of praise. In fact, that's how most con games are run, by appealing to the Mark's ego. Often when we're the ones delivering the praise, we, we don't really feel the work is that good either. We're just ecstat ecstatic that little Janie or rambunctious Mark has actually written something that we, that we don't offer realistic and honest comments for the work, but more for the fact <coughs> that they actually put pen to paper and got something down. It's the first step, we think, except it's the first step on the wrong path. Watch some of the other kids when someone writes a poem about his or her feelings without a word about what created those feelings. I'll bet at least three kids will be rolling their eyes. Another one will be pantomiming gagging, usually boys. Our response is to chastise the miscreant, but we might be better served in figuring out that they're just being honest critics, albeit a bit rude. These are folks whose BS detectors are on and in working order. But have little Janie stand up and read her poem about her mother, never how her mother never cooked supper, and how she spent an hour every night hiding the liquor bottle from mom, and I'll bet any amount of money there'll be a lot less eye-rolling going on. I'll bet the audience will be transfixed, and many of them relating to their own experiences, and they'll learn what real poetry is, and I imagine at least some of them will become excited when they see one of their peers can write something that others pay attention to and feel something when they hear it, especially if Janie never uses a word like sad or desolate or sorrow. Janie won't have to. The listener or reader will feel all of those things from the event itself, just like Janie did. On a different kind of school that you teach in, say, a school nestled in a wealthy suburb where the Janie there stood up and read the poem about a father who was never there as he had to travel for his job, and how he'd missed her dance re recital and her 12th birthday party because of business. That Janie doesn't have to say a word about how bad she feels about not having an active father. The poem does all that, and many of her peers will relate. There'll be a lot less eye-rolling than if she read some fuzzy piece about her feelings. Make sense? Poetry, just like fiction, is about trouble. Even the poem you told me you plan to write, the happy poem about your present pregnancy will be a much better poem if you include the miscarriage that came before. Okay, Kay responds, Hi Les, you're right about sharing emotional things with people, especially our writing. I guess I just wasn't ready to, to do so because it was still so recent. I could tell them next year when I share it with them. I also wanted to ask your opinion about adding poetic devices, <laughs> sound devices, figurative language, etc. in the poems. When I spoke with my master's professor, she encouraged me to use more. 
that's why in the, that second poem I use personification, alliteration, metaphor, hyperbole, and a couple of other things. Is that something you suggest I focus on? Or do you think people really look for that? In response to your question, you can definitely use my poem on your blog. It's very humbling to have it on there for what not to do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. As a writer, I would welcome advice and examples like that in whatever medium I could get my hands on. So if I can help with that, then I'd love to. You can share my email, too. Would it be okay to revise the first poem and send it to you again? It probably wouldn't be for a while, but I want to see if I change it for the better. Kay. Hi, Kay. I'd love to see a revision on the poem. <laughs> Let me comment on a couple of things you said. First, you have good instincts when you say said you weren't ready to do so because it was so recent. That's a very legitimate concern. Most writers need some distance from truly emotional events to be able to write coherently about it. Unless sort of the writer Graham Greene spoke of with that piece of ice in her hearts. Just wait till you have enough psychic distance and then write it. But when you write a poem or a story, I'd make sure you had an emotional attachment to it, or it may not end, end up particularly well. As far as your professor's suggestions, I would take exception to some of the things she advised. For one thing, alliteration is much in disfavor these days. It's considered somewhat archaic and draws attention to the writer overmuch by making the reader aware there's a writer at work behind the words, therefore interrupting the fictive dream. Years ago, we used to see newspaper headlines that used all kinds of alliteration. No mas, as Roberto Duran famously stated. A reporter using alliteration these days would probably be fired unless he's working for the Stumpy Hollow Gazette. Considered very amateurish and just too cutesy. I would also eschew hyperbole, at least in a serious form. It's really a symptom for synonym for melodramatic. If you lower the volume, the effect is infinitely more profound than if you raise it. Let the events speak for themselves. Don't help it out by hyperbole. As for metaphor, those are fine. One thing you didn't mention was symbols. Good. Good writers don't purposely employ such devices, but, leave, but let any symbols rise organically out of the work itself and don't strain to include them. The best symbols and the ones that work are the ones that are original to the poem or story and rise naturally. The ones that don't work are the ones that are consciously inserted. These are things deconstructionists look for. The artist doesn't. The artist simply writes a good poem or story. Quality poetry and fiction is always about affecting the reader emotionally, not intellectually. The thing about professors is, is that they have to have some kind of criteria to judge something. Most of them look for surface things, like the aforementioned. It's what they've been trained to do and perhaps all they're comfortable with. That kind of exposes such a teacher as someone who doesn't have much faith in their own acumen to judge the quality of work, but depends on these kinds of things. They're looking at the work in an intellectual light instead of an emotional one. I suspect such a person as being one who hasn't published much herself, and if so, mostly in obscure places. That may be unfair or even incorrect, but I kind of doubt it. The thing is, writing is based on living languages, English in our case, and living languages change, mutate, as do tastes in literature. While alliteration, for example, was at one time considered a very clever technique 
Today's readers are too sophisticated to buy it. It's like transitions in fiction. It used to be something taught avidly. Today, transitions have adopted movie structure and aren't signal like they used to be. Just a couple of examples of how both the language and the literature have changed and continue to change. The problem is educators in higher education are often behind the times, just the nature of their jobs. They spend a lot of time, energy, and money to learn their body of academia and they're invested in it. Makes it difficult for some of them to change sometimes. Hope this helps, Kay. Thank you so much for letting me use our exchanges. And send me that rewritten poem. I have a feeling I'm going to want to recommend it to my friend. By the way, I don't write much poetry, but here's one I had published in the Blue Moon Literary and Art Review about a year ago. I wrote it shortly after I got out of prison. It's titled My Father and Robert Frost. One day I found a volume of poetry by Robert Frost in the prison library at Pendleton and checked it out. Back in my cell I read, Home is the place where when you want to go there they have to take you in. When I made parole, I called my mom to tell her my good news. I found out my dad had never read Robert Frost, at least not that poem. Hope you've enjoyed this, folks, and hope that it helps inform your own writing. That's it. That's it. You want to talk about it? Okay. What do you think? Um, I think I want to write some poetry. <laughs> That's how most of us, that's how I started out. And it was horrible. I wrote descriptions of shit. Oh, you know what I thought of? Uh, Anne Sexton. Yeah. You, know, you know Anne Sexton? Oh, yeah. Actually, she's pretty academic. Buy her book? I forget. At some point, I think I had a copy of her poems. Uh huh. But I think she came to the forefront in the 80s because yeah. Peter Gabriel. You know who? The most powerful poet I ever read was, besides Bukowski, who was, uh, uh, oh God, Yosef Komenyaka. Oh, you told me about that guy. Oh my God, Mary and I went to a reading at IU. We were both balling. He's a big black guy, and he writes about Vietnam, and it was fucking powerful shit. Well, he won the Pulitzer, and I think he won a Nobel. Yeah. How do you spell his name? Yosef, Y-O-U-S-E-F, I think. I'm close enough anyway. Komenyaka is K-O-M-E-N-Y-A-K-I. I'm close. I know it's not it, but hmm. that's close. He's very prominent. Very powerful poet. He didn't write about bluebells and you know flowers in the field and shit like yeah, that. Yeah, what I remember, it, this Anne Sexton poem stuck but with she's, me. She's a, it, did she stick her head in the oven and kill herself? No, no, it's somebody else. No, that's the bell jar. Edith. Edith. Yeah. Not P.F., but yeah, Edith. Yeah. The bell jar. Plath. Sylvia yeah. Plath. Sylvia Plath. Yeah. No, she wrote this song about uh, whatever. I mean, the. It was. Anne Sexton's poems are not pleasant. Yeah. Cool. You know. I may even have some of her stuff here somewhere. I'm and they basically it. evoke images of things. Things happening, doing things. Cool. And it evokes a, a, a feeling. Yeah. It evokes a feeling. It's not saying I'm sad. Because you're living through events. Right. That right. are powerful. Right. Like rowing on a rowing in a rowing a boat out to sea. 
something that, I forget the exact poem, but uh-huh. it's just a real, and then Peter Gabriel has a song kind of based on that, and it kind of captures that that feeling. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's, again, the song is just the description of these things happening. You don't even really, you know, good stuff. So you think this is valuable? Yeah. Good. I mean, yeah, the whole thing about feelings. I mean, it's 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 that tricky. It's a tricky thing because, like, when I'm learning, you know, you, you, um, you want to write the thoughts of the person, but actually, the other writers in the workshop cat catch me on this all the time is he felt and she felt and I'm starting to catch myself now yeah. on he felt she felt or he was sad or yeah it's so easy to say he felt this way or that way yeah but it's it's harder to express that inner thought without saying he felt yeah but what you come up with is actually more powerful yeah it's a lot better yeah it's the heart it's like the it's the hard road yeah so the easy road. Yep. So. Oh, it's funny. Uh, in Mary's work, I did the, all of my critiques last night. Yeah. And I made the comment that it was, I, you know, I, I'm not used to, I'm, I told her it was really smooth writing. It's great characterizations. I mean, she really kind of, I really got a sense of like who Granny, Gran was and uh-huh. who the stable guy was, like that. Yeah. You know, like she's really, I don't know what it is, but, um, but I was like, everything is like going so well. It's, yeah, that was my only comment that she got this way too easy and you saw what she wrote back to me. Yeah, so I saw, I didn't see your comments, but I saw her response to yeah. you. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, but way it, too easy. It felt like, I don't know, do, would you think that she's waiting too long for that to happen? Yeah. It's not just that nothing's happening. It's like there's no challenge for her. Like, what's the challenge? Yeah. The challenge is what? She's she's a woman in a man's world. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but that's well, not it's, a, it's like even she chose Steeple, and I would have chose horse racing. Thoroughbreds, because that's something everybody knows about. Not everybody knows about steeplechase. Oh, and I didn't. It, get, it looks I like a rich man's that. sport anyway. Uh huh. You know, you jump over fences and ponds and shit. Uh huh. Yeah. And people fall and they get hurt and shit, but right. it's nothing like a thoroughbred race. I don't see anything wrong with her talking yeah. about horses and steeplechase. No, I don't either. But I don't think it's it's well known enough for it to have any gravitas. Well, wouldn't that be an attraction for some people? I, some people, but I don't think the majority. I think the majority of people they understand horse racing, even if they've never been to one or anything. They under, they've seen it on TV. Right. They've seen Churchill Downs. They know, but nobody's. Very few people have ever seen a steeplechase. But what does it matter? Well, because you have to relate to something. But I mean, like the pipeline. Nobody's ever been to the pipeline. Yeah, and it's not that interesting. Right. It's just a place. Yeah. I got a feeling it's just. Pipeline doesn't mean anything to me. Is if you know, I don't see pipes or anything. I just see they go to this place that's kind of isolated and rural. That's all that matters. Yeah. So like the same way as steeplechasing is not about the sport. It's about her. Her 
how she's what's going on in her life. Like the setting doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, it does. The core of the the story is like her trials and tribulations, like the inciting incident, should be something that changed her life, right? right. Like the fact that Corky is at a high Catholic elementary school, it's just the setting. It's, right. the, it's like the behavior of the people. And but it's, it's important. Why is it important? What if you had him at a, uh, uh, a very rich all private school and his dad was the wealthiest guy in town and all the students liked him and shit? But it's logical to me. I don't care what it is to you. It's it's really a big deal. You know what? You're a big deal. Okay. My strength, going back to the last Corky scene where it touches me emotionally, is because for me, my strength, even like when I was going to Holy Name of Mary and I was like, I wasn't the picked on, the lowest level of the right. strata, right? Right, right? I was like middling. Like, I got picked on sometimes, I peed, whatever, that stuff happened. But when the gym teacher had us sit in a row because somebody was misbehaving, I forget exactly, we were like playing like dodgeball, dodgeball, and then he like stopped it, and like everybody had to sit down. And this is like before I can already break. see the scene developing. Why isn't that in there yet? It's like sixth grade or something, right? So what? Jack it up. You're not writing real life. You're writing. You're creating a story, man. Get that shit in. It sounds powerful already. <laughs> I'm sorry. So we're sitting there, and me, little Jack Holland, who is not one of the leaders of the class, not shy Jack Holland, who didn't really speak out about anything. Mm -hmm. I raised my hand and I said, why are you making us all sit? It doesn't seem fair for you, man. For everybody to be punished because one person did something. Yeah. Little oh, you're kid. Gonna, you're going to argue with the gym teacher. You got balls. I was a little kid because of, because of the unfairness. Yeah, I hear you. Because I was always defending other people. I don't care about myself. I had very low self-esteem. But when I saw unfairness in the world, yeah. I learned very early on that I had that in me. Why? I don't know. Why? Because I love you. Oh, that's a song. Why are there birds in the sky? Yeah. <laughs> no. You're just a hell of a guy, man. That's all I got to say. I admire the fuck Why out am of I you. a hell of a guy? The shit you go through with your attitude. That's People nice. go through all kinds of shit. Not everybody. Not everybody has your attitude. You got to know that's true. Sucks for them. <laughs> yeah, whatever. But I love I my just, life. I just, I admire the fuck out of you. I just do. You're my hero. You are. Okay. Whatever. 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 Where's my million dollars? They don't pay you for that shit. I don't pay you for that shit anyway. You have to go talk to somebody else that has money. John Sanford. Yeah. Um, His last book sucked. He's lost you it. You remind me of uh, Tommy Tuprik, this Hungarian guy. Oh, I thought of a better name than Cuba. 
What? Big Nose. Big Nose? Yeah, I love the name Big Nose. Every every little gang or whatever has a big nose. That's so discreet. You won't forget that name, Cuba. Yeah, I mean you won't forget it, but it's actually you can have hair then. Kind of common. That solves that problem. But big nose is is, yeah. Big nose. See, I'm I'm good with names. I can come up with some names. That the problem with Cuba is that the real Cuba was probably in his early twenties, yeah, and was balding. Yeah, but I got. I want to make him younger, like eighteen or whatever. Calling big nose, and if he's Italian, that even fits it. Right? No, that's fun. That's fun. I'm full of ideas, man. <laughs> Names are important to me. Big nose, and it's funny because it's like he's like leader of the pack type. Yeah, and it's like, but all those dagos have names like that. Everybody calls him Big Nose, and it's an insult, but he doesn't take it like an insult. I wouldn't. He's like, if my dad had a big nose, I had a big nose? Fuck you. If you get a nickname, any kind of nickname, that makes you accept it. I've always been called Big Nose. Really? I um, that's a line. I, I would have called you Big Ears or something, not Big the Nose. Characters. <laughs> the character's line. Oh, oh, I got you. Okay. <laughs> big Nose. Big Nose Carlucci. Yeah, there you go. That's a good I like the last name, too. That's a real person. Big Nose Carlucci? No, my younger <laughs> sister's friend, Dina oh. Carlucci. Yeah, I just don't have a vision of the pipeline. I don't know why. I get this feeling there's a there's a big pipe that you crawl through or something. I don't know. They never mention a pipe. They just call but, it the pipeline. But pipeline, that's, what it, the, that's the kind of image it gives me. Is there some kind of conduit like that lets water through or something? You know, like okay, that's the image I get. I don't think about it that much, but pipeline. I don't. That's the only thing I can think of. It's there actually is a pipeline there, but it's underneath under the ground. But my experience, my personal experience of the pipeline, it's just like a strip of woods by the railroad tracks. So you don't even see a pipeline. No, and I had no, I didn't even know about where the name, the pipe, I just thought, I think I originally I thought it was just because it's a path, wood, uh, like a path through the woods, like a pipeline through the woods. And then later I discovered, oh you no. sure you want to use that name then? It's the nickname. Just like In a, a real place, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter what's real. What matters is the world you built. No, it's just like there was a whole discussion in the group about like everybody had like three 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 spikes or three flags or or Lucy's hideout. They had all these names for really. I didn't see it. Yeah, they were like Lucy's Lucy. So nobody liked like like Lucy's then. opening. It was like a double entendre for like the place where the kids like hung out by the beach, and everybody called it this name. Now, I see, I didn't even know it was underground. I, I had this, you know, there's these concrete things that you can stoop and crawl through. Right. That's what I thought it was. That's what it actually is, yeah. But You said it, it doesn't show it's below ground. Originally, when they built it in, like, the 1880s, it was a regular open-air conduit oh. to Brooklyn. So why isn't it open-air now? Because eventually they put a cover on it and they buried it. Oh. I'd leave the cover off. People crawl through it. No, it was actually used to transport water, drinking water. 
from all the lakes in Long Island to oh, okay. Brooklyn. But all that history mean it doesn't mean anything. It's like the Black Door or whatever, you know. It's it's just the pipeline. It's just the name. Yeah, but if it's not even visible or anything, then why even call it that? Why do you have to have a real place? I don't. But that might come up later. Because there's like a time when we actually went down into the pipeline. It's buried, so you had to dig? No, there's like manhole covers. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, if you use it like that, it makes sense. I said I didn't even know about the manhole covers or anything. Yeah. I thought it just got buried and it was you couldn't see it or anything. No. Oh. There's man, there was a manhole That's cover. That's something you might want to spend some time describing a little better. Well, it'll come up it, later. And then bring it into play. That could come up later. Why do they call it the pipeline? Oh, because there's a pipeline there. And like, what do you mean there's a pipeline there? There's a pipeline underneath freaking... Why don't you put that out in the beginning? Just saying. Okay. See, I just don't have a clear idea of it at all. You think now, it's confusing? Yeah, yeah, because I don't know why it's called that. I, I, I really had. I don't even know what you call them. Just, I don't know pipeline. Actually, I got a letter downstairs. I got a sign. I'm, I'm, I'm selling a pipeline in Louisiana for oil drilling. That's been in my family for a long time. And it's a pipeline, but it carries natural gas. And they're given seventy grand an acre for it. Really? Yeah, I get about two hundred fifty for my share of it. Uh, I've been getting little royalty checks for years. Where's my pen? I have, don't know if I leave this room. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a big detailed description if you just just some kind of solid description. I think would help. Be, it's interesting because I've been thinking about as like I'm moving towards the first adventure, the first visit to the pipeline, mm -hmm. and how that fight happens with Henry. Yeah, maybe pushing that back instead of trying to reconfigure it. Yeah, pushing it back somehow. So it happens earlier. So it happens a little bit later. Oh, okay. Okay. In Corky's development. Okay. Because of the point that you've made that. Um, he hasn't well, developed where he can be in a fight. That's all right, though. Remember Thelma Louise? Uh -huh. Shooting and killing that guy is very quick into the story. Right. So there's nothing wrong with that. Uh huh. But they don't linger on that. They just get the hell away. They're running for their lives now. Oh, okay. Okay. But this is a nice little thing to and put in. And you got him in a coma, so you don't have to worry about him that much, except occasionally. Right. Keep keep it on the reader's mind. Right. No, I, I, I don't think I'd make it any later. Just, but, okay. Just so, use that coma. But I have to relook at how the, the fight in the pipeline happens. Because... Yeah, if that's buried Corky's, underground and you got to go through... Now there's things you got to open up and shit. No, 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 no. The fact that Henry comes out of the bushes and the, the, the fight ensued, he like... And he's choking him out. Corky's choking it. It's on him choking him. And they have to pull him off. Like maybe that's you. That part is a little too much for Corky to do so yeah. soon, right? Yeah, he's he's he hadn't earned that yet. Right, so it's, I have to reconfigure it where. 
He accidentally. Well, I, I made a suggestion a while back on that, and I said instead of that. Run away and find a rock. and Yeah, and throw it and accidentally do it. Not something he planned. No, but that's, you're tying the two incidents together. I am. There's an incident in the pipeline where he's first there, and Henry. Well, it can't be in the pipeline because it's buried, right? <laughs> the location. They're in the in the place where everybody hangs out in the woods. But right? the pipeline's buried. You said they can't even see it. The pipeline's the name of the location. I understand, but you also said now there's a thing they can open up and go into it. Right. You'd he say. doesn't know that yet. Okay. He just thinks it's just the name of this. He doesn't know why it's called the pipeline. I would have him question that. Maybe maybe the other people don't know either. Right. But have that why you call it the pipeline. I don't see any pipeline. I just wrote that down. That's a, That line is in my head already. Cool. <laughs> but see, then I then I kind of get an idea. That, that name's used so much, it, we got to have some idea what it looks like. Yeah, I, I had Why the hell they call it a pipeline? Yeah. People who are reading are going to say that. Yeah. The next is going to oh, that's weird. Especially when you can't see it. <laughs> okay. And I, I understand in real life, da-da-da. So, the Henry fight, Henry walks out, he appears with the girlfriend, just got a blowjob, and Henry's like, um... I forget how the fight happens, but but he's like making fun of him, or he pushes him, or yeah, something like that. He pushes him back, and yeah, I think Henry trips, and he's he's see part of the problem now. Actually, who's the other guy with him? Tim and uh, Eddie. Eddie, why don't you have Eddie do it? That would be like Tom and Louise, where her friends are on it. Because he would still be implicated. He's with him. In the way the law says, you're with him, you're part of it. Eddie do what? Be the one that knocks him up, puts him in a coma. Then you got it exactly like Thelma Louise, which is not a bad thing at all. Hang on. I'm going back to the first scene in the pipeline. The problem with it now, now that I made the realization or came to the full understanding <laughs> I keep of throwing shit at you, don't I? A full understanding of the fact that he knows the surface story problem from the get go. Mm-hmm. I'm working that through now I'm working through everything. Yeah. Adding in him dealing with that and him making choices based on that. Right. Right? Good, 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 good. And moving through it, right? Mm-hmm. Makes a beeline for the exit, and now I'm at the point where he sees Tim, and now he's going to make the choice. I can just go home, and I'm just going to add, I've already made notes now, not only going to add the him falling again, but I feel like there's like, I'm going to add when he leaves the auditorium and he goes back with his family, and there's this little thing with his brother. Luis. Luis, they push each other. He yeah. pushes Luis into the bushes. His dad pulls him away. Right there. Right there is is room for more craziness of the family. Uh-huh. So he's chosen to go instinctively to go back to the safety of the family. But it's not... Safe. It's, it's kind of safe. He knows it. But it's crazy. Because it... it See, for that, I would have the dad... I would have somebody yell out during all the thing in the auditorium. Oh, they're talking about his bedwetting. Then his dad gets it, and his dad knows. 
and his dad tries to comfort him, which is right. the worst thing that could happen. Right. Is right. To have his so dad like know. when he pulls off, he pulls Santos off. Yeah. I mean Santos. That's my real thing. <laughs> he pulls Angel off. That's what. That's the opportunity for him to like comfort him. However, it like works. Like comfort him, and he's like, and then something else happens that distracts. Like he's gonna like. Oh, this is a good one. So he's like, Dad, you know, Dad's going to, like, comfort me. He's like, he feels good because his dad's acknowledging. And then, like... Oh, you mean the bedwetting? No. Dad's showing caring about his feelings, right? In what respect? In respect that he's just being... Santos and, I mean... Comforting his feelings because he understands about bedwetting? Wait, hang on. Here's the steps. So, Luis and... Luis and Angel is like, it's all about your bedwetting. And he's yeah, like, cool. pushes him in the bushes. Yeah. And Luis comes back and hits him in the arm. He's like, oh. And then dad jumps in. Pull. Currently, it's he just pulls Angel away. Okay. And then he's off, right? And then mom comes up, right? Okay. So instead of having dad leave the scene, dad pulls Angel away and says something to him to comfort him. Angel? To comfort Corky. Oh, okay. He's not just pulling Angel okay. away. He's like this, and then he says something to Corky. Will it be something he says to him that acknowledges he knows what it's about bedwetting? Right. Okay. Now it makes sense. And then it, it kind of makes him feel good, but it kind of makes him feel like shit. I would think it'd make him feel like shit. That's okay. the worst thing in the world. Have your dad know. And you always went off for the worst that can happen. Well, he knows all about the bedwetting. Well, he hadn't in the version I've read. He the asked who? him, and, and he, he didn't know. The dad did not know. No, about... The, he, he, yeah, he doesn't... He doesn't know that his dad knows that Waterbed Salesman is about the bedwetting. And it's but he should. Public shaming. But he does know. Okay. But Corky's convinced him. This is like the real life dynamic. Corky convinces himself that nobody, that his dad, at least his dad, doesn't know that he's just. But you gotta have his him know that his dad knows. Okay, he Corky know he knows. Of course, he knows about the bedwetting, but he doesn't know that the waterbed sale. He, Corky doesn't know, like he's he's convinced himself that at least my parents aren't talking about right. it. And my parents don't know that I've been shamed right. publicly. But then you got to let them know real quick. But then when he pulls Angel away, I keep trying to say Santos because yeah. I'm picturing Santos. Well, Angel Santos are the same to me as a couple Mexicans. Puerto Rican. <laughs> same thing. They're all Mexicans. Whatever. They're Whatever. All Mexicans. He, instead of him pulling away and going away, he, he says, whatever, I'll work it out, but... That's a moment for him to be like, fuck, my dad's, I'm so embarrassed because my dad knows that I've been publicly shamed yeah. and the connection. See, that's a big deal. So he can't like, he can't respond to his dad. And then Santos is like shaking the, then I could keep that shaking the parking okay. meter, distracts his dad from the love he's trying to give his son. And... The mom comes in and lays on And he's like, oh, fuck, both. And see, both of them give him sympathy. It's the worst thing could happen to him. Right, and maybe somebody... And then 
Then little it, Louis. What's even worse is to have a friend see them comfort him. Right, I was just thinking that. that see, now you're thinking about big dealizing it. You're making it worse and worse, and that's that's the way to think about this. Joan, or whatever her name is, the girl he thinks he's in love with, if she happened to see us, that, that would just totally crush his butt, wouldn't it? And then maybe have a big nose come up and say, oh, your mommy and daddy, they're going to tuck you into bed now, make it all feel better, kiss your popo. Shit like that. His mom, he, you know, his dad's, I'm just picturing his mom and his dad. But yeah. his mom's like this. Oh, poor Corky. And he looks over. <laughs> and little Louise says, poor Corky. <laughs> and then it's like, poor Corky. <laughs> From across the street. And that's... And that's Jerome. Or, not, not Jerome. It's one of her, his buddy, Frank oh, Murphy or whoever. Okay. He's, he's like being hugged and he's like bathing in it. He's actually accepting the comfort. Ooh, I wouldn't have accepted very yeah. long. That'd be embarrassing. No, 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 for a second. Oh, okay. But in that second, it's like, poor Corky, poor Corky, poor Corky. It's his little brother saying poor Corky. And then it's like his classmate from across the street, poor Corky. Yeah. Kevin. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That works. <laughs> and then he's like, Fuck. And then he pushes his mom away and she's like, then. And she's hurt. He's hurt. She's hurt. Dad's hurt. They're all but hurt. <laughs> then he's like. See, it's almost all right for the mom in secret to commiserate with him, but never the dad. Right. That's too much. Why do you say that? Because in real life, that's just the way it is with a boy. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. my mom, if she comes, that's cool. Yeah. As long as nobody knows about it but my dad, that's not cool under any circumstance. And then he makes a choice, you know, fuck this. I'm going to go hang out with Jerome in the ice cream parlor. Yeah. Because he thinks that it'll be easier. See, in the ice cream parlor... They need, you need to do more in there to oh. really make it bad for him. Oh, more than you, you know what happened. Oh, it's in, it's in the writing. Yeah. <laughs> you got to make this black day of flat rock. <laughs> Did you say that in the notes? I didn't read your notes yet. I forgot. I mean, I didn't forget. I just didn't get to it. Well, I mostly was concentrating on the book on the dialogue. So. It was just a little too wooden. <laughs> it's gonna be like I mean I'm you want the, you want the reader to feel so sorry for this poor kid. And you want him to keep trying, getting himself up, dusting himself off and trying but getting knocked down again, 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 again. Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. That was Lesson Jack, Unwriting Uncensored, Episode 6, How to Create True Emotion. Feelings of love.